is indeed an honor and a privilege to be with you again, to come before God's holy, inspired, and authoritative Word. If you have a copy of that Word with you, which you should, either personally or in the pews in front of you, I would invite you to open it to the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, we'll be looking at verses 31 through 34. I will read, pray, and we will dive right in. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Father, it is indeed around your word that we come. Humble that you have seen fit to condescend to us in your word, revealing to us the ultimate condescension of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate. I pray that as we come before this holy text, that you would exalt Him and magnify Him. Let Him be the banner that is placed before our eyes that we see. Help us look to Him in all of our sorrows and all of our despairing. Help us look to Him in all of our arrogance and in all of our pride. Help me to rightly divide your Word of truth, being nothing more than your mouthpiece, not having on display my own talents or skills of speech or persuasion. But I pray that you would work exalting Christ by the power of your Spirit before your people. Pray for their hearts and their ears and their minds, that you would open them to receive your word that you have given to them. Father, we are thankful for this opportunity, and we ask now for your help in understanding what you have put before us. In Christ we pray. Amen. So as has already been acknowledged, we are still in the season of Advent. Some of my friends who hold very dearly to the church calendar would emphasize we are, it's still Christmas. Even though the gifts have been opened and the wrapping paper thrown away, it's still Christmas and we are still celebrating. And the holiday season is a time filled with not only presents, but emotions. And these Emotions are plastered across various products that are placed on store shelves to be purchased as gifts for loved ones or even not-so-loved ones from time to time. You can hardly walk into any store, restaurant, or, or place of service without reading the words joy, hope, peace. We're told that this time of happiness and blessing to be spent with family, friends, or in some cases ourselves away from the busyness of day-to-day life and work. Treats have been prepared, gifts have been purchased and wrapped, 
placed under a tree, and by this point given to those for whom they were intended. We have probably slept in on a weekday or two in the past week or so, unless you're really disciplined and really diligent with your daily routine. We've perhaps even eaten foods of which we are at other times deprived, at least those of you that have some semblance of self-control. That's not me at all. I eat the same food year-round. Nothing too special about that this time of year. We've gathered together. We've partied together. We've sang together. We've hugged. We've kissed. And we've said goodbye until we're ready to do it all again next year. Great things. Good things. Joyful things. Happy things. However, if we're honest, this time of year also comes with many negative emotions as well, that they don't plaster on the coffee mugs and the candles and the decor and etc. Some for more noble reasons than others because some of us are simply petty, right? You don't want to admit it, but you are. So-and-so never buys us a gift or buys us the wrong gifts or buys us too many gifts. I'll confess that my wife and I had far too long of a conversation the very day after Christmas complaining about how many presents my parents and her parents bought our children and all the junk that we had to haul back with us from Bradford, Arkansas, an hour and a half all the way to Conway, like a couple of cranksters just sit there and complained. We're petty. We're forced into situations to see and talk to those whom we would rather not and are quite thankful that we only have to do this a handful of times out of the year. The embarrassing uncle that annoys you. The cousin or the sibling that doesn't quite live life the way that you think maybe that they should. The in-law that just doesn't get it. Now some of us have more noble reasons than others though because some of us face a lot of sorrow and anguish and loneliness this time of year. It's no secret by now of the rise in suicide rates around the holidays and the year's end. You didn't get to give the gift you would like to give to the person whom you would like to give it to. You didn't get to see the one you would most like to see. You didn't get to hug the one you would most like to hug. You didn't get to kiss the one you would most like to kiss. This was my third Christmas without my beloved grandfather who taught me so much and gave me so many good things, both concrete and abstract throughout the years. I felt this loneliness. And while those of us who are simply petty complain about our interactions with those who annoy us, you would give anything to hug or kiss that special someone just one more time. In these instances, this time of year is simply sad and heartbreaking and difficult, and lonely, and all other kinds of negative, emotional, descriptive words. And to those of you who suffer in such a way, I offer my personal sympathies. But I'm here today to offer to you something so much more and so much better than personal sympathies. Because what I have to offer to you today, what indeed has been given to us some 2,000 odd years ago, is not sympathies, but good news. 
As Glenn prayed, he prayed that God is a God not only who hears, but also who acts. And indeed, we are able to gather here together today to celebrate this season because our God has indeed acted. He has indeed heard our cries. He has indeed seen our sin and our suffering and our arrogance and our pride and our rebellion and our lust and our anger and our everything else that we have against us. And he has came and he has acted in spite of those things. We have before us today not sympathies, not the how to get through the holidays in a difficult state of emotion handbook. We have good news brought to us. We have real and true good news proclaimed to us, embodied in a God and man baby in the manger of a Bethlehem stable, come to die in our place. And this good news far supersedes our pettiness and it far supersedes our difficulties. We come to the foretelling of this good news in the text of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 that we read just a second ago. The people who received this word from the lips of the prophet Jeremiah were not unlike us. They too were petty. And they too were filled with sorrow and anguish. This great people who laid claim to the title of God's chosen people, whom he had called out by his name, for whom he had worked wonders and rescued them from the terror of the Egyptians were once again enslaved and exiled. It certainly appeared that they were without hope. I don't normally title my sermons, but today I have indeed titled this one, Alien Hope in the Midst of Native Sin. Alien hope, something outside of ourselves in the midst of native sin, that thing that is very true to our nature. As we come to Jeremiah 31... First, we see this. We see this new covenant is giving. We see the timing of this new covenant. Behold, the days are coming. Some of us make more tactful approaches when we speak to someone who is going through a hard time. We try hard to to listen carefully and to speak as little and as carefully as possible. We don't want to be guilty of pretending to understand what they're going through, or even worse, we don't want to be guilty of completely misunderstanding what it is that they're going through. You've all been there at some time or another. You have that that friend or that loved one that calls on you when times are hard, when things are difficult, and you, you want to be careful. At least I hope you do. You speak tenderly and you speak calmly. You speak as little as possible so as not to put a misplaced word out there. God has no reason for such practices. His love for His people is expressed boldly and with certainty in what He claims. He tells them that the days for their suffering are indeed coming to an end. He tells them that a new and better day is definitely coming. Behold, the days are coming. You have to love with what certainty God speaks of what it is that He's going to do in the Scriptures. The days are not possibly coming. God is not the Father who has, who has to struggle with the difficult balance of work and family life, who has the deadline that has to be met, but has the child that has to be loved and cared for in time spent with that says, maybe, 
If daddy can, can get this done, if, if daddy can get this sermon prepared on time, maybe he will, he will push you in the swing. If I, can, if I can get my work done, sweetheart, maybe we'll go out for ice cream later. God has no such restraints on him, and so God speaks with boldness and clarity that the days are coming. So we see this timing of the covenant is definite. It's for sure. It's future, yes. It's still being waited upon at this point, but it's coming. And for us, the good news is it has come. In that baby in a manger, the reality of this new and better covenant has come. Now, we see next the maker of this covenant, behold, the days are coming, declares not Allah, not Buddha, not whoever your favorite TV evangelist is, not whoever your favorite emotional spe- or motivational speaker is, not whoever your favorite author is, not, not declares you yourself, not declares your father or your mother or your aunt or your uncle or your boss or whomever, but the days are coming declares the Lord. The Lord. It is, it is fitting when, when we're dealing with that person who is in despair, it is fitting that we take approaches that we take when we're seeking to comfort them. Too, too often we do make those mistakes that we're so scared of making. We, we do misplace a word here or there. We do speak with a tone that is just a touch too harsh or inconsiderate or insensitive. We certainly make those mistakes. But, but God, as we've already said, has every reason to speak with boldness and with clarity. Because he is the one who has made all things. He is the one who has declared all things from the beginning to the end. He is the one who flooded the earth and made the water subside and replenished the earth through Noah. He is the one who established his covenant with Abraham and promised to make his offspring as the stars of the sky and as the sand of the sea. He is the one who brought Joseph into Egypt and who would bring the Israelites out through Moses. And when Moses would go to speak to Pharaoh, God told him to tell him that Yahweh sent him. The Lord sent him. Yahweh, his his covenant name, the name by which he is known and called by his people with whom he establishes his covenant. It is he who makes this covenant. This God, this omnipotent, omniscient one, this holy and righteous, this mighty and powerful and majestic God declares the days are coming. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology says of this name here for what we have in English as the Lord, this Yahweh, it is especially in the name Yahweh that God reveals himself as the God of grace. It has always been regarded as the most sacred in the most distinctive name of God, the incommunicable name. It points to the unchangeableness of God, yet it is not so much the unchangeableness of His essential being that is in view as the unchangeableness of His relation to His people. You see, when God makes a promise, He has this nasty habit of always keeping that promise. 
as we stave off our, our children because of the busyness that we have going on, making these promises as gently as we can and putting every avenue in place as we can so as not to break this promise. If I get this done, then so I will do this with you. Even then, if we're honest, dads, right, sometimes we don't get the work done or we, we do, we get it done, but we don't get it done in time and so the promise is broken. And our children are left sad and wondering, can I even trust a thing you say? God is not so. God makes His promises. His promises are certain, and He always keeps His promises. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now we see the name of this covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We've spoken already of the time of year we're in, in and coming out of. It's a time of year for many things, but... One of my favorite things about this time of year, and I suspect probably yours too, is getting new things. New things. Our many hobbies cause us to wear out their instruments. New models of our favorite things are released that promise to be better than the old ones ever could have been. The hand-me-down instrument that we've been playing for years. The phone with all the old technology. The shoes that we've been wearing that are broken down at the ankle and worn out in the sole all look to be replaced with a new and better at this time. God promises something here to his people that goes so much further than a new instrument, phone, or article of clothing. He promises a new covenant. Oh, how gracious of a God this is for him to have even been to have even made, as was already an act of his overflowing love. And he had already allowed us to live and simply put us out of the garden and even clothed us when we sinned against him. And for him to have condescended to us and to have given us a law, his holy standard to be kept in honor of him, was indeed a gracious act. But for God, this God who's Steadfast love endures forever that overflows out of his essential being. That wasn't enough. Now, after Israel had failed to keep, no, blatantly rejected his law, and likewise so have you and I, he comes and he says, hold on, I'm not done yet, and promises to make still yet a new and better covenant with them. What? A gracious God. And what's even more shocking is, is not only that he makes a covenant, but the parties of the covenant, the ones with whom he makes the covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now let's, let's put this into perspective. We've been talking a lot about our relationships with, as parents with our children well, let's talk about this idea. We all as parents have things that our children do that just drive us bonkers, right? Would you just please stop that? Quit, stop it. Sit down, be still, be quiet. Haven't I already told you? Don't you know better than to? Fill in the blank. If you're anything like me, the one thing that will get your fire burning faster than anything is not simply for your children to disobey what you've told them to do, not for them simply to do something that they know better than to do. But if you have more than one, for them to fight with one another. I cannot stand 
to hear my oldest daughter squeal at her little siblings because they're somehow inconveniencing whatever the play is that she has going on at the time. And tell her time and time again, can you not please just love your closest neighbor and welcome them into what it is that you're doing? God here speaks as a father, certainly angered and disappointed with how his children are acting. See, at this time, the kingdom is divided. That's why he says that he'll make this covenant not just with Israel, but with Israel and with Judah. The kingdom was divided. The household was split. The siblings were at odds. Christmas wasn't going to be pleasant this year. It was going to be tense. You see, God, being this gracious God that he is, like I said, is in the habit of making promises. And in the even nastier habit of keeping these promises. And possibly in the nastiest habit of making these promises and keeping these promises with, with, with good people who have it all together and vote the right way, Right? Oh, he has this, this gloriously disgusting habit of making and keeping these promises with filth and repulse like you and I. Sinners who've committed cosmic treason and rebellion against such a holy and such a righteous God. This God looks at us in our sin, looks at us in our depravity, looks at us in our rebellion, looks at us turning our noses up at him, looks at us biting and devouring our brother and our sister, our neighbor, and says, I'm coming for you. I'm going to make all that right. I'm going to make even still more promises to you. And I'm going to keep those promises despite your sin, despite your rebellion, despite your ability to love me and to love one another. I am going to make all of this right. I'm going to make you right. I have an uncle that I love dearly. He, he, he's my favorite of my, my mother's siblings. And he was the, my favorite one to ride around with and Newport, whenever I was growing up, and we'd go visit them there. And I always looked up to him and I always cherished him. And my parents raised me going to church. His parents didn't. And, and as we got older, my mom and dad started inviting him to church. And he would come from time to time, but then he would veer off. And mom would say, come on, let's go over to your Uncle Charlie's house. I called him Uncle Chaz. So we'd go over to Uncle Chaz's house and we'd go in. Hey, Uncle Chaz, how are you? You know, hey, man, how are you? Good. And I'd hear my mom ask him, where you been? Why have you church. And he would always say, and somehow because God is so good, even then I knew what was wrong with this, he'd always say, well, I'll start coming when I can get myself right. I got to get me right before I can come do the God thing. Brothers and sisters, God comes to us when we are far from right and makes us right. He, he doesn't wait for us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. He doesn't wait for us to fix our own problems. No, he is the eternal problem solver. And he comes. And he solves not necessarily our marital problems, though maybe that could happen. He doesn't solve necessarily our problems with our children, though yes, maybe that could happen. He doesn't solve our job problems, though yeah, maybe that could happen. He doesn't solve our transportation problems or our clothing problems or our housing problems or our eating problems or whatever problems. No, he solves the biggest problem at all. He solves our sin problem. He 
comes to sinners like you and me. Sinners like the house of Judah and the house of Israel and says, I'm making a new covenant with you. Now, this covenant is contrasted to the old covenant. You see, it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. We've already seen this is not the first covenant that God had made with His people. Far from it. He had made a covenant with Adam in Genesis 1 and 2, the covenant of works or the covenant of life. He made a covenant with Noah in Genesis 8 and 9. He made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. But the covenant contrasted with the new covenant is the covenant he had already made with Israel as a nation, the Mosaic covenant. Now, when was this this covenant? Well, he tells us, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This covenant was at least inaugurated when God rescued his people from slavery and bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. And perhaps it was consummated when the law was given on Mount Sinai. We can argue over the specifics some other time. But if you would allow me to do just a little bit of theology for just a second, this is an important point in how we as Presbyterians and really as how all Christians should understand the entirety of the Bible. It's commonplace today to say Old Covenant and to think what? Old Testament. And the problem with that is it places the more explicitly gracious covenants that God makes with His people, such as the Noahic covenant, such as the Abrahamic covenants, in the place of what is here being promised to be made null and void. Furthermore, we learn in Galatians 3.14 that the Abrahamic covenant was never annulled, but is still in full effect. And we, the Gentiles, take place in it through Christ by faith. So the covenant spoken of here is not the entirety of the Old Testament. No, we shouldn't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament as some modern-day scholars and pastors would want us to think. If anything, we should strongly hitch ourselves to it. For in it we see our sin and our depravity. In it we see Christ put forward for it. And in it we see our own sin and rebellion restrained and order put into place in the way that we live our lives. No, it's, it's the Mosaic covenant, the covenant given to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai that he's speaking of here. Now, what was the nature of this covenant? Well, it was a republication of the covenant of works from Genesis 1 and 2. It, do this and live. It, it's in some senses a conditional covenant. It could indeed be broken, he says here. It's been broken. To be sure, though, it was gracious in the sense that God condescended to reveal His will for His people and to provide a way to commune with Him, but it was conditional. If they kept the law, they would receive blessings. If they broke the law, they would receive curses. What we see playing out in the prophets is really a grand course of God v. Israel. Israel has broken the law and therefore is deserving of the punishments that the law demands. And as they find themselves here, there's there's no way, due to their sinful hearts, that they could ever have kept it. Nor you, nor I. We love to make arguments about how the Ten Commandments should be posted at all of our courthouses. Really, that's what you want, a reminder of what you can't do, posted before the court of law? I hope you never go there on trial because you're condemned. 
You're all murderers. You're all idol worshipers. You're all adulterers. All of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when Israel broke this law, they broke it like a bride breaking her vows to her husband. God says that they did all of this, though I was their husband. I've been blessed to have a faithful wife who has not been unfaithful to me. But if I'm honest with you, and I've told her this, my greatest fear is that she would be unfaithful. I can't fathom the emotional distress that I would feel, the the tensions that I would feel pulled within myself. On, On one hand, I have now biblical grounds to divorce her. On another hand, I'm told that I'm to love my wife as Christ loves the church, and the church is indeed a a disobedient church, even described in the scriptures as as a prostitute, a a harlot, and and Christ loves me even when I'm that way. And so maybe we should stay together, and it would tear my soul in pieces. Maybe some of you have experienced this, and if You have, my heart goes out to you, and I can't imagine the pain that you feel. And I don't bring this point up because I want to have shock value. I bring it up because it's pointed out here in the text. These people broke this covenant, even though God was as a good husband to them. They committed not mere adultery, but cosmic adultery. Adultery, divine adultery, failing to displace the pagans from the promised land and doing exactly what God had told them not to do and taking their daughters as wives and adopting their religious practices. The entirety of the law isn't even given on Mount Sinai before they start worshiping a golden cow. They were cheating at the wedding ceremony before they even walked down the aisle. There's a song that always comes to mind. Some of the younger people in the room may know it by a band called Panic at the Disco. If you know it, you know what it's about and you know how it relates here. If you don't know it, don't look it up. I don't want to offend you. But the point being that the bride didn't even make it to the altar before she was unfaithful. Yet here is this God condescending once again, this time not to give law, not to give legal demands that will just be mocked and ignored and and, and shredded to bits, but this time condescends to give a new and better and more gracious and more glorious covenant. He doesn't give demands that have punishment waiting behind them, but he comes in our disobedience to save us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you. That's me. That's all of us. That's the Israelites here in this passage. Now, as we move on in the text, we see the nature of this new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now this phrase, after those days, indicates at least three things. That their suffering is not coming to an end just yet. We're in Advent. We're in this season of waiting. Well, they were here thrust into a season of waiting some hundreds of years before they would see any fruition. Secondly, that there is an end in sight. It is going to stop. And thirdly, that a new era will dawn with this covenant. Now, God promises 
four things in this covenant revealed in the passage. First, he promises divine publication. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I remember being a young teenager. I was the the captain of FCA at my high school and, and you had to have an adult sponsor that was out of the school system and one in the school system. And the one that I had that was out of the school system, somebody I developed a close relationship with and I'd go to her house and we would oftentimes stay up late even after her children would go to bed and just talk about the Bible and things that we saw. And I remember one time coming I didn't know it at the time. This passage quoted in, in Hebrews and going, it's almost like God is saying that he makes living the Christian life like common sense to us. And she was like, yeah, that, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And as I got older and got a little snottier and you know, better in my theology, that's the same thing, right? I realized, oh no, it's so much more than that. It's so much greater than that. And now, as God continues to humble me, I kind of come back to that and I think, yeah, that's kind of what's going on here. It's like common sense. Now, I don't mean that that there's not times where things are very difficult and complex and decisions have to be made and what would a faithful Christian do here? And you have to figure that out through whatever means, prayer and the word, obviously, and seeking your pastor and wise counsel. I get all that. But this isn't common sense because I don't want to be irreverent, like in the sense of like you just naturally just know what to do. What we have in this promise of divine publication is the promise of regeneration. The promise isn't that we will somehow just be better people and therefore be able to please God on our own. We need what Ezekiel promised to these same people that they and that we would have a new heart. Now, Paul picks up on this imagery in 2 Corinthians 3 when he opposed the so-called super-apostles troubling the Corinthians. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you know that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom." And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. To summarize that very simply, what Jeremiah is talking about here in this law being written on their hearts is that the Holy Spirit would come and give us a new heart. He would regenerate our heart. He would take our heart of stone hardened against God's holy will and give us a heart of flesh that beats for worship and honor and glorification of this holy God. Divine publication. Secondly, it's promised divine communion. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God promises this time and time again to his people as he establishes a covenant with them. And we should certainly not think that it was any less true in the Old Testament. But we certainly find the fullness of this promise in Jesus Christ bringing us into the household of God. For Jews and Gentiles, this is what we see taking place in, in Romans 11, that great passages that blew even the Apostle Paul's mind that, that, that God had torn off the branches of the Israelites who did not obtain the promise by faith. And through that, those branches being broken off, Gentile branches were grafted in. And as we've been grafted in, these branches that were broken off might see us and be jealous for what God is doing. And they might come to faith through our testimony and they too could then be grafted back in, that there would be one tree, that there would be one people of God and there would be one God that we would be his people and that he would be our God. There are two separate plans for two separate nations. There's one plan by one God for one people, his bride, the church. Divine publication on the hearts of those with whom God would have divine communion. And in this divine publication and participating in divine communion, they would have within themselves divine knowledge. Some of you are ready to espouse heresy. Listen carefully. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now certainly this verse can be easily abused by some and mean that we have no need of teaching in the church or for elders to instruct the people. Perhaps if this was the only passage dealing with the subject, we could draw such an extreme conclusion. But it isn't. This is not what God means when he says this. Isaiah declares that all of God's people shall be taught by the Lord. Ezekiel, in his famous disparagement of the false shepherds over the people of Israel, promises that God will shepherd his people by shepherds equipped to care for the sheep appropriately. And we know that Christ came as our good and better shepherd, and he He's the great teacher of Israel. And in his great commission to his church, he tells them, the under-shepherds, whom he would leave to shepherd the flock of God, to make disciples by teaching them to observe all that he had commanded. So obviously what's going on here isn't a throwing out the teaching of God's word amidst God's people. So what does it mean? It means that our instruction, though given by those whom God appoints to teach his people, will be received by the same Lord who empowers the teachers, who has written the law on the teachers and on the hearers' hearts. The same Spirit will guide them all into holiness for His name's sake. It is the Holy Spirit that inspired the Scriptures, that regenerates the hearts of sinners, that indwells believers and guides them in the truth. This is what Jesus said of Him in John chapter 14, that He would teach us in the ways 
of all truth. And so divine publication is placed on the hearts of God's people. We are brought into divine communion with this holy and righteous God. We are given by His Spirit divine knowledge to know and to understand what it is that He has given to us. And as great as all of that is, I mean, that's some cool stuff. And it may not feel like it, but we're going quick here. We could spend days and weeks and months on these things. But all of it means jack squat if we are still left in our sin and in our rebellion. So we receive this divine publication. We receive this divine communion. We receive this divine knowledge. But thanks be to God that through His Son, Jesus Christ, we have received divine forgiveness. Forgiveness. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. No more. Whatever it is. I know some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, but you don't know my sin, man. You don't know the depths of my wickedness. You don't know the things that I have done. My closest loved one doesn't even know the things that I have done. How could I ever possibly be forgiven? Brothers and sisters, I tell you that Jesus Christ has declared you are forgiven. The good news of the gospel of grace has come on the lips of another to you to be said, no matter how deep it is, no matter how dark it is, no matter how far back it goes, no matter how few people know it, God comes to you in Christ and he says, you're forgiven. I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their iniquity no more. Now, it's not as if God just turns a blind eye. This isn't a passive forgiveness. It's an active forgiveness. It's a forgiveness that we have by the shed blood of Christ on Calvary's cross on our behalf. The sin that we've committed, this this old covenant that has been broken, had to be kept. It, it, It couldn't just be shattered and broken and swept under a rug or into a dustpan and thrown out the back door. It was God's holy standard. It had to be kept. But we can't keep it. Christ came and kept it for us. He lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved. That he might be able to say to us, my brother, my sister, my child, my beloved, my bride, you are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you that in Christ Jesus we are forgiven. Help us to turn and look no longer, dwell no longer, and act no longer in our sin, in our filth, in our unrighteousness, in our wickedness, in our rebellion, in our lies, in our hiding. But by your Spirit, bring us out of darkness into your marvelous light and teach us to look to Christ in whom we have the forgiveness of our sins in whom this new and better covenant has been established, in whom you have made your promises and in whom you have kept and will keep your promises. Amen.